Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, which is starting its fundraising campaign soon. So think about donating to CIUT if you're in the area. Also, we're broadcast on many community radio stations, different ones around the country, and we're thankful for that. You can also find us on podcast platforms on the, on the interweb. My name is David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stephen Kurt, Christian Erwin Hostetter. And Lauren Latour cannot make it today or the coming like three weeks. She might be calling in because she's at COP26 as we speak. She's in Scotland. And you will hear from her for really half the show. Stefan will be speaking to her. She'll be speaking with Stefan about COP26 in general, the Conference of Parties. The climate talks that are just about to happen. Pivotal. Oh, yeah. How pivotal are they? I'm going to say very. If I had to think, choose, I think what's going on in the States right now probably would have a bigger impact than this particular COP. Like if you got climate legislation from the States and this particular COP did not move the needle as much as one would hope, I think we'd be probably better off in a situation. However, given what we can probably expect from the States, I think that even further puts more pressure on this uh, this agreement to really ramp up ambition. Because this is a special thing since the 2015 Paris Accord, international accord to, 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 to put out emissions targets and commitments. I mean, this is supposed to be like a, a follow up to that. Yeah, this this is the first one in this is its five years. Well, it was supposed to be the five years from there. And so it's where everyone is bringing in their new targets. Five years after Paris, yeah. new targets. It's the first attempt for countries to sort of come back and say, okay, we've had five years, here's how we're doing, and here's what we'll do for the next five years. Mm. And it's a really pivotal moment to see how much ambition we can get out of our governments. And so <clears throat> we are talking about the future of the species, right? Oh, yeah. I see. We do have a lot of, well, some in-depth, whatever you want to call it, climate news. It's also about COP26, the news stuff. And we're going to do that in a second. But Stefan's going to say, answer a question from a listener first. Yes. I have a question from a listener and then also a quick shout out. Okay. Question listener uh, was, and, and if you want to send us questions, by all means, always email us. Our contact page is on the website or you can tweet at us. But this question was about why everyone from politicians to the public are taking vaccine science so seriously, but have felt slow to respond to the science of climate change. And I think the short answer here is the status quo and economic biases that are at play. You know, the science of climate change was asking everyone and is asking everyone to change their way of living. The science of vaccines gave people a way to return to their way of living. This combined with the fact that most of the powers that be stood to lose out on moving away from fossil fuels, whereas once again, vaccines gave a way to restart and reopen economies. You know, there's obviously benefits there. Both of these things mean that climate change faced some pretty strong heavy headwinds uh, of those who wanted to keep their fossil fuel party going, whereas vaccine science had the tailwinds of countries and businesses wanting to get out of the lockdown and to stop the immense public health costs that the pandemic had caused. And so while the science behind both is sound, what we're seeing is the uphill climb that real change requires and the power of entrenched institutions. And there was an opportunity there for a second. People were pushing, people were talking big. I don't know if it was the governments were talking big or it was just agitators were talking big. But there was an opportunity to use that vaccine, the recovery from COVID, 
to initiate a green transition. Oh yeah, and well, governments around the governments around the world claim they were going to do that. That's literally where the Build Back Better, you know, that we're talking yeah. about in the states was coming from. You know, yeah, exactly. T- lots of talk about that happening, and it, it really seems to have fizzled. Uh, yeah, has pretty, not occurred. Not really. No. The the second quick thing is the shout out. Um, which is a huge shout out to everyone who who worked hard trying to get U of T to divest from fossil fuels fossil fuels over the past near decade. You were the creators of one of my favorite chants of all time, and today you won. The University of Toronto. University of Toronto has fully divested. Uh, well, no, they've the university declared that it would divest from investments in fossil fuel companies in its four billion dollar endowment fund beginning immediately. So that's is that all of their investments then? I believe there was. I believe this is going to happen in a year, and then other funds with by twenty thirty total. I think there's like something. Ha- there's one thing happening in a year, and then one thing happening in, in a, by by twenty thirty. But the four billion dollar endowment, which was a majority of what the push was, um, it, it, should they say it will be done in a year? You know, the chant was, uh, "What do you want? Fossil fuel divestment? When do you want it? Gradually over five years." Mm. They've taken a lot longer than five years. And now they're at least giving themselves one instead of five. So gradually over one year. Yeah, but do it now. And then eventually by eight years. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. But still a huge win. Congratulations to everyone who was working on the divestment, and hopefully the the rest of some of the the McGills of the world will fall suit. All right, so should we do the news now? Let's dive in. With the pivotal, as we've concluded, the pivotal COP26 climate talks in Glasgow set to begin. I'm saying Glasgow. I think that's Scottish. The United Nations has released its emissions gap report, which calculates how much global warming humans are likely to cause based on our current greenhouse gas emissions and our stated goals. The report found that even if every country meets its most ambitious commitments in time, we are going to cause around 2.7 degrees Celsius of heating, which is considered catastrophic. UN Climate Secretary Patricia Espinoza stated that it could cause global stability to collapse and migration crises and hunger and conflict with massive flows of displaced people searching for safety. The UN Climate Agency is specifically warning that millions of people in Africa will face drought and floods in the coming decades from climate change. As Tim Cox puts it for Reuters, quote, Africa's fabled eastern glaciers will vanish in two decades. 118 million poor people face drought, floods, or extreme heat, and climate change could shrink the continent's economy by 3% by mid-century. The UN has blamed the recent flooding in South Sudan, which is the country's worst since 1962, on climate change. The International Institute for Environment and Development recently put out a report showing how this climate crisis is causing people to fall into the hands of slavers as they travel in search of new homes. The report states that over 40 million people are currently living in conditions of slavery, slavery-like practices, bonded labor, debt bondage, and forced sexual exploitation. It states, quote, The notion of slavery is often relegated to the past, 
but figures show that more people are subject to slavery today than at any time in history. The Biden administration has meanwhile released its first-ever climate migration report, which, unfortunately, is merely a review of existing knowledge, rather than anything prescriptive for the U.S. to do about it. There is a drought that has been going on for as long as 13 years in some places in South America, with attendant food scarcity and fleeing refugees, but attempting to get into the U.S. from the southern border seems just as terrible now as it was under Trump. A recent report from the Institute for Economics and Peace states that 1.26 billion people are living in countries that are dealing with conflict and war combined with the climate crisis. Going back to COP26, it is likely to be a terrible failure unless rich countries can actually manage to convince one another or to be moved by the pleas of people on the front lines to do justice to the suffering of less rich countries by giving them money to grow and adapt to the coming changes. 23 wealthy countries agreed to provide this money back in 2009 and have still not come through. Now these wealthy countries are pushing that financing into 2023, but the countries who need it will not be able to verify how much has been given until 2025, but we need wealthy countries to regain the trust of everyone else right now in order to have international cooperation towards saving ourselves. A new Global Citizens Assembly will convene for the first time at COP26, which will bring more democracy into the process, but it's not clear if the Assembly's findings and recommendations will be allowed to hold much weight. Protests are ongoing in the United States, as at least 155 indigenous activists and climate protesters were arrested outside the White House earlier in October. Jennifer Falcon of the Indigenous Environmental Network is quoted by Inside Climate News as saying, quote, People are tired of the United States pushing extractive industries on our communities. Our communities are not a sacrifice zone. A few Sunrise Movement hunger strikers have gone over a week now without food. They confronted Joe Manchin this week, telling him that they will have to grow up in a context of continual climate crises, as he retorted that it is Asia, not the United States, who need to cut their emissions. Manchin has been doing his best to block Biden's climate agenda, which will make it harder to get anything done at COP26, as the U.S. government will appear as it is, unable to do anything broadly significant on climate internally, much less lead internationally. This goes to show how totally private corporations are in control of the U.S. governing system, as its alleged democracy is unable to pass laws to save its own citizens, but the oil company Chevron is able to buy politicians, judges, and lawyers to destroy the life of Stephen Donziger, who angered Chevron by helping to win a lawsuit on behalf of indigenous Amazonians a decade ago in Ecuador. Chevron has still not paid the money they were ordered to pay for dumping toxic waste into Amazonian waterways and poisoning 1,500 square miles and thousands of people. Here in Canada, in a comical and predictable twist in the tragedy of Jason Kenney's time as Premier of Alberta, his government's inquiry into environmental activism has finally produced its official report, and the report states that environmental activists have done nothing wrong in their opposition to the Alberta oil sands. The inquiry that has just finished 
is called the Inquiry into Anti-Alberta Energy Campaigns and has found that charities campaigning against the oil sands received, to this purpose, from U.S. organizations, on average around $3.5 million a year between 2003 and 2019. Meanwhile, charities working in support of the oil sands received almost $27 million from foreign sources during that time. Since Kenny was attempting to prove that environmental opposition to the oil sands was part of a foreign campaign to destroy the Canadian industry, his inquiry has failed dismally and has proven almost the opposite of its thesis. West Coast environmental law staffer Eugene Kung is quoted in the Energy Mix as saying, quote, This ill-conceived inquiry has not only been a colossal waste of time, these petrostate tactics threaten democracy and hold Alberta back from the important work that's needed to transition to a cleaner economy. On top of this, Kenny's $30 million per year war room that has been opposing environmentalists since 2019 is actively derided in the inquiry's report. Finally, Jason Kenny has another thing to be angry about as Justin Trudeau has appointed the Green Jesus of Montreal, Stephen Guilbeau, a longtime environmental agitator and activist, to be the new environment and climate change minister. Just quickly note that the Dongzinger thing, you know, he, when we record this, was the day he went to prison for six months. And if you want to read an unbelievably sordid tale of just how many ways the miscarriage of justice on his case, I, I recommend uh, looking up some of the writing that Amy Westervelt has done on it. And I'm also going to skip over uh, the COP26 pieces because we dive deep into what to expect from the conference with Lauren in the rest of the show. But I do think it's worth highlighting a bit about what 2.7 degrees of warming will mean for this world, as I think it would be pretty easy to know that for a long time, you know, the goal was to keep warming below 2 degrees, and that actually remains the goal of the Paris Accord, while 1.5 degrees is sort of a stretch goal. And so you hear 2 degrees, you could, you could easily, you, and you could well think, well, 2.7 can't be that much worse, right? And sadly, as you noted above, or as you noted earlier, the answer is yes. 2.7 degrees of warming is much, much worse. And that, and, and that this goal is not only currently, and that this goal is only currently able to be attained if we match our most ambitious targets, which many countries are not on pace to do. Because the reason why two degrees was chosen was that this was where a number where scientists believe we'd have a, still have a shot at remaining in control of our warming, meaning that there was at least there's a ch at least a chance that two degrees wouldn't trigger some type of feedback loops, you know, like releasing methane from underneath the permafrost, uh, and it was it it wasn't guaranteed, mind you, which is why 1.5 uh, was pushed, but it gave us a better chance to avoid these runaway climate scenarios, and it's pretty safe to say that 2.7 would lead us beyond that threshold, and so it's very bad, which is why we're seeing so much effort to push the United States into action right now, and why COP26 could prove so critical. It's truly now or never. On the lighter side, however, let us take a second to wallow in the misery of those who were rooting for Kenny's hit job on environmentalists, and let us double wallow in the absolute comedy that is the Allen Inquiry's comments about Kenny's own 
quote unquote war room. Alan's the guy who, who conducted the inquiry. Exactly. Right? Yes. And the inquiry is the inquiry into anti Alberta energy campaigns. Exactly. That's the name of the inquiry. Uh, so here are just a few quotes about the thirty dollar, so about the thirty million dollar war room from the three point five million dollar report. Quote. In the course of my interviews over the past 18 months, the Canadian Energy Centre has come under almost universal criticism. The Canadian Energy Centre, of course, is the, is the new name that they changed to after War Room was also panned. Mm. Another quote from the, from the inquiry. There may be a need for a vehicle such as this, assuming proper governance and accountability is established to develop a communications and marketing strategy for the industry and slash or the province. But it may well be that the reputation of this entity has been damaged beyond repair. End quote. And the third, quote, in addition, there were several missteps from the outset that damaged its reputation from which it has not been able to recover. So, Again, as you noted, keep in mind, both the Canadian Energy Center, a.k.a. the War Room, and the Allen Inquiry were both meant to target environmentalists and yet instead find themselves squabbling over which one of them might have been the bigger waste of taxpayer dollars. And finally, one quick thought uh, on our new environmental minister. From all accounts, you know, Stephen Gilbo was a passionate environmental activist but from all that has occurred over Trudeau's tenure, it does seem as if the prime minister's office holds a tight grip on what is done by this government. Oh, cut him some slack. It's the green Jesus of Montreal. The guy looks like he crawled out of a cave in which he was just doing a YouTube video about how to sew his own loincloth using only deer skin. I, I mean, again, the guy is a beast. He climbed, he climbed the CN Tower. And again, he as as a, to to highlight lack of action on climate change, you know, whatever that is. I mean, he was in Greenpeace for so long, twenty years, Stefan. I'm not questioning his real credentials. In fact, the confusion I'm having, what, what what I'm left wondering, is if, if we were going to see the prime minister's office truly advance ambitious climate politics, wouldn't they want a more middle of the road salesman? Like, wouldn't you want to put someone who you could make the case for is, you know, the the sort of centrist, you know, like a uh, Mark Carney, for example. And if you're going to put forward, you know, weak policies that you want to claim that, that, that they are stronger than they are, who better than an, an environmentalist with real activist credentials to sell that lie? Like, you know, there are already articles saying that, that, that his appointment has scared Alberta. You're already playing into this sort of right-wing talking point if real policies are going to get put forward. Now, I think it's good that someone like that cares as much as, as, as he does is on this file. So you're saying on the one hand, he's a, he's a bad appointment if you're going to actually do something because he's going to frighten people just because of his pedigree. And on the other hand, the deep green of his past is going to greenwash what's, what's going to be a lackluster thing by Trudeau. Well, that's my fear, that if you were going to push something like this, push real, real action forward, you know, it seems like you'd choose someone who you could position as more of a centrist because that's what the liberals do. But again, literally, there are already articles talking about his appointment being a threat to Alberta. Yeah, but how much do you say? How much do you keep saying there's no point in Justin Trudeau worrying about frightening Alberta because they're never going to vote for him anyway? Oh, no. And so here you are using the opposite argument to attack the green Jesus of Montreal. I'm not attacking him. I, his appointment. I, I'm not even taking Suge his appointment. Suggesting it's like, uh, what do you call it? What do you call it? What do you call it? 
decoration, window dressing. I'm just concerned. Smoke screen. I'm, I'm just concerned it could be. A, 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 a bad political move that's also a spokescreen is what you're suggesting. Like the politics, they keep getting elected somehow, so who knows? But like, I'm that's just my only concern. But for God's sake, I mean, after everything I just highlighted, you would feel the need to take down the one glorious thing. The one glorious thing. I mean, look at this guy. <laughs> like, there are environmentalists I deeply, deeply Anti-oil trust. Anti-oil crusader. There he is. There he is being taken away by the police. Looking like a madman who's just escaped from jail. Yeah, and that's on the National Post. You already doing a hit piece on him, <laughs> which came out like you know two days ago. This is the, this is my point. <laughs> we'll see. I know many environmentalists who consider him uh, a true champion of of climate of environmental policies. I just think we cannot presume all is well, and we have to pay attention. So here's a, here's a quote from Stephen Gilbo from azquotes.com. Global warming can mean colder, it can mean drier, it can mean wetter. Why would they? Why is that the quote? That multiple. Anyways. Time is running out to deal with climate change, Stephen Gilbo. Obviously, everything is going to be excellent. And even, even our very machine, which is chugging, chugging ever closer to the precipice, Stefan, even that will survive. This is not a normal interview because we are joined by Lauren Latour. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Stefan. It's so exciting to be here today. Exactly. So exciting. It's almost like you're here every week. But it's a special segment because you are, are going to the Conference of Parties, COP, uh, in Glasgow. And in fact, when this airs, you will be there. We're pre-recording this conversation, but it will air on the 29th of October. And so you will have arrived there just shortly. But it'll, I believe it will still be a few days before it starts. Yeah, yeah. COP starts on Sunday the 31st, but like we go early to like prep because we're nerds. And also like I always like to be there a couple days early because I'm I, I like to orient myself in the city, figure out what my like my commuting route is going to be like and pick up my badge and and get all my ducks in a row. So, right. Yeah. Heading a couple of days early. So actually, so sort of this with a, a more general question, which is this is not your first one. How many have you been to? I haven't been to all that many. Like there's some people that are like, like veterans of cop have rented a gazillion of them. Well, not a, there's, there's, this is the 26. So there's only 25 they could possibly have been to before. This will be my third. The first two I went to were cop 21 in Paris, which was like the big one that a lot of people heard about the one after that cop 22 in Marrakesh. And I went to those with a group that was around at the time called the, the CYD or the Canadian news delegation, which was like a group of young people between like 19 or 20 and 30. Um, years of age who would who would go and uh, the Canadian youth delegation sounds very official but but we weren't we were like kind of a ragtag group of kids who would go and stir things up and and be there to push for a slightly more rad climate justice focused approach so that's what I used to go with and and this year I'm going with work and something regular listeners will probably note is that I never actually mention who I work for and that's because I can be kind of a brat 
And I don't necessarily want that to reflect poorly on my colleagues. So I'm going to continue to not tell you who I work for, but, but that's why I'm going this year. It's, it's, that's with my employer. Well, I was going to pretend that we have enough money to be able to send someone as an official or official delegate. But yeah, so, so you are going and you are, I'm going to say a, maybe not a, maybe not a veteran, but at least, at least someone and maybe not a cop head, which I've now decided is what, uh. Cop head? Is that a, yeah. is that a term you've coined? Yes, exactly. Yeah. If you've got it more than 10, I think you're a cop head. That's my, that's my position. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm by no means a cop head, but I, I am, I am, I'm a little bit experienced. Great. And so perhaps using that experience, I feel like it's one of these things, this one's like things where it gets mentioned so commonly in the, in at least environment circles, like these conference of parties are talked about all the time. Paris is referenced every day, it seems like. And yet, because it's kind of a convoluted thing, I don't know if people actually totally understand what happens or why they exist, right? Like, I feel like you, you get a bit of sense of it because of that, how the agreement at the end, but like, can you just actually describe what is happening, what's being negotiated, and like what theoretical outcomes are? Yeah, so I can try to answer that as best I can, because even as somebody who's gone to a couple, I still only have like a, a super limited understanding of like the vastness of what happens at these, let alone the average layperson who has no idea they happen on a yearly basis. Yeah, so from the name, COP26, that's this year, you can deduce the 25 of them have happened before. And basically, if you heard about the Kyoto Protocol a gazillion years ago now, that came out of COP, the Paris Accord, that came out of COP. And basically... It's this big negotiating space for all of the different parties or countries, basically, come together to talk about how to take action on climate and how to develop basically a treaty that is non-binding, but a treaty to come together to take action on COP. Now, in addition to the, I think there's 197 parties, which means 197 different countries that come together. In addition to those different parties that come together, you're also getting civil society coming together to contribute as observers. You're also getting world leaders usually coming, not every year, but every couple of years, there'll be a big world leader summit. So you're getting world leaders and ministers coming together to sign off on things. And then you also have groups. So you have a group of small island developing states or like, I can't remember what the acronym is, but it's like your most vulnerable countries or you have like the Arab group of countries or you have the G77. So in addition to having each of these individual countries all coming together to negotiate, you also have these groupings of countries coming together to negotiate as like a coalition to add a little more weight to a given stance. Because as you can understand, a group of wealthy oil producing nations is going to have really, really different desires and expectations and wants than the small island developing states will, for, in for instance. So that's basically what a COP is, is everybody's coming together to work on these various policies. So like, for instance, what is being discussed. There's still, there are a lot of things that are being discussed at a given COP, but like for this one specifically, a COP 26, there are a bunch of technical issues that need to be finalized. And a lot of these are things that are left over from the last COP that happened two years ago now in Madrid. So something that people might've heard before being talked about is Article 6. And what is Article 6? Article 6 is being finalized this year and it's it discusses carbon market mechanisms, which basically means that a carbon market mechanism would allow countries to purchase carbon credits from another country. And that would allow the purchasing country to continue to emit within its borders, which is like a confusing concept because like carbon pollution doesn't know a border. But anyway, so that's how it works. And obviously carbon markets then includes the trade 
of those negative emissions. So like carbon absorption through forestry or whatever. So it's it's this complicated, heady concept that needs to be sorted out and also needs really stringent rules applied to it because as I'm sure you can understand, it can be abused really easily by wealthier, higher emitting nations. So that needs to be ironed out this year. It's super contentious because of because the degree to which it can be abused. And because as you said before on the show a million times, it's like even the concept of net zero on a finite planet is like a weird thing. So Article 6 is something that's being discussed this year. That's Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, sorry to confirm. Another thing that's often discussed and will be a hot topic this year is devoting funding towards loss and damage. And two things that people might have heard before in association with loss and damage are the Warsaw Mechanism and newly developed the Santiago Network. Basically, in a nutshell, loss and damage is the idea that in addition to money going towards adaptation measures and money going towards mitigation measures, there are some things that will be lost and some things that will be damaged as a result of climate change that, and that cannot be avoided, that cannot be mitigated against, and that cannot be prevented through adaptation. So because there are going to be largely like small island developing states or like low-lying nations that will experience a lot of loss and a lot of damage as a result of climate change, what, what is trying to be set up through something like the Warsaw Mechanism is a wealthier nation like Canada devoting money towards this loss and damage fund. So these less wealthy nations are able to better account for that loss and for that damage. So that's being discussed this year as well. There's also always a lot of conversation around climate finance. And there's, uh, I believe it's like a $100 billion, $100 billion US dollar finance target that they've been trying to hit for a long time. Canada has now committed to its fair share of that, but it's it's insufficient. So basically, yeah, climate finance is always on is always a hot topic because again, we have wealthy nations that are largely culpable and that need to be putting money into these funds for adaptation and and mitigation as well for these less wealthy nations. Then there's also conversations around nature-based solutions that have been happening a lot. I can't dig into it because I don't actually know that much about it. Nature-based solutions is something that I'm largely ignorant around, but it definitely factors into the carbon market mechanisms, that Article 6 conversation, because so often nature-based solutions are called upon for carbon sequestration. And then there's there's the Paris rulebook that is being discussed as well. And like one of the main things that needs agreement on this year is like developing common timeframes for countries and DCs or their nationally determined contributions. So basically, yeah, how often do countries have to like reevaluate where they are are at in meeting their targets, whether their time frame should be five years or 10 years. And obviously a five-year time frame is, is more ambitious and more aggressive than a 10-year time frame. So that's another thing that's being discussed this year. So there are lots of negotiations happening in small back rooms, not back rooms, that, that sounds clandestine, but there are lots of negotiations that happen all the time to deal with all of these nitty gritty, boring policy details that have to be ironed out basically in order for a large international treaty to function. Great. All right. That's very helpful. And, and so the other thing that you mentioned, and I think that just to, to put a final point on it, basically like when we're looking at the Paris Agreement, that was a really big lift of having a shared document. And now we're going through the document and being like, what do we mean by this paragraph? And then what do we mean by this paragraph? It's still all under the Paris Agreement. It's just that we are now editing and, and clear, cleaning up some of the language or documents and other questions that sort of still exist within this the sign. That is my understanding. There are also still some conversations. And to be honest, it, it it's beyond my 
my like comprehension, but like there still are some conversations that happen that are relevant to the Kyoto Protocol. And there still are some conversations that are relevant to, I don't even know what the proper name is, but there was Copenhagen happened before Paris. Copenhagen was like COP 15, I think. And and that was supposed to be a really big year and it ended up really failing. But there are still some things that that play into like into the Copenhagen negotiations. So it doesn't just deal with Paris, but it it, it primarily deals with Paris, but it does deal with some other accords and treaties as well. And all of that's negotiating stuff. That's not to mention, like I said, there's a world leader summit that happens at the same time. And then there's like all kinds of side events that people host to have like workshops and various conversations on different topics. And then you've also got the green zone, which is the public space, which to get into the space where the main negotiations happen, it's referred to as the blue zone. You have to be accredited through the UNFCCC, through the United Nations Federation for, no, I can't remember all the C's, climate change, but there's an extra C in there. And I I should know that acronym, but I don't right now. Anyway, so in order to get into the space where the negotiations happen, you have to have a badge. You have to have a, yeah, you have to be allowed in and you have to be registered. But anybody can go into the green zone, which is the public space. And what happens there is like, there's lots of like really cool events that happen. There's kind of like, I say a trade show trade show makes it sound like it's a lot of industry. There is industry there, but it's like various exhibitions. So there's the public space as well that's designed to be a little bit more accessible for anybody who wants to to take part. Cool. I, I was going to briefly get into the question of Article 6 because my memory serves me. That was a bit where Canada really basically wanted to be like, we have a lot of forests. We should be able to sell the art existence of forests to the world. And you know, as someone who is in Canada can understand, our ability to still have forests should not mean that someone else can burn more carbon given our timeframes. But that's like, in case anyone wants to think that Canada is going to go into this as an exclusively good force, know that we are definitely trying to get people to give us free money or allow us to get even more just because of the size of our land that remains nature. Yeah, and that's problematic as it is. And when you consider the fact that like Canada's forests are so mismanaged, they aren't actually a carbon sink. They're actually a net contributor to climate change. Like the audacity of Canada going in to Article 6 negotiations and being like, okay, so here's the thing. We should actually, like, it's it's ridiculous. So that's why Article 6 negotiations are so contentious. They were theoretically supposed to be wrapped up in Madrid two years ago, but they weren't because it's so complicated and so and so fraught. Yeah. That's why it's taken so long. That's why people are so heated about it, because it's it could allow an easy mechanism for abuse of the system, basically. Yeah. And so let's move on to more positive thought conversation, which is actually what we're hoping to get out of this or, or even this like hoping might imply that we truly believe we'll get there, which I think most environmentalists going into these cops have to be at least decently cynical. Like I remember how excited everyone was for Copenhagen. I will admit on air that for a brief period of time, I thought it was called COP because of Copenhagen, not because of the Conference of Parties, because that's how much of a deal was made about that particular COP. But what is civil society asking for? What if everything somehow goes as well as we could hope, what would we get out of this? Yeah. Okay. So there are a lot of things like I can talk about what civil society is specifically looking for out of Canada. But basically, if I were to like whittle it down to a nutshell, what people want to see is more ambition (laughs) because through those nationally determined contributions, which is, is basically your target, there's other stuff involved. 
But like what a lot of the time it's dumbed down to is like your target. So in Canada's case, it's that 40 to 45 percent by 2030 window is our NDC or is like the primary focal point of our NDC. And so, like I said, they're negotiating the Paris rulebook. So it's those terms and those timelines. So that's a space where people want to see ambition really ratcheted up. And the fact is, all of our NDCs do not add up to the amount of ambition that is required under the Paris Agreement, let alone enough ambition to keep warming below 1.5 C. So like the official party line with the Paris Agreement is that parties to the Paris Agreement have to endeavor to keep their or like by signing it, they say that they're going to keep their emissions like at or below a level which would amount to no more than two degrees warming, aiming for 1.5. But 1.5 is just like a nice addition kind of thing. And at this point, it's like not only are those targets insufficient for a two degree target, they're insufficient for a 1.5 target, if that makes sense. So basically, it's like in an ideal world, we would see ratcheted up ambition across the board. What that means specifically for Canada is that the number that civil society has been calling for is a 60% reduction by 2030 domestically, coupled with an 80% reduction internationally, which would result in 140% reduction below 2005 levels by 2030. And that's kind of complicated. It's like, how? what do you mean an 80% reduction internationally? But that would mean like through financial support, resulting in an additional 80% of Canada's emissions being reduced. So that's one big ask from Canadian civil society. Another big ask is, of course, <laughs> phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and public funding for the sector by 2022. I'll just I'll rattle through a bunch of them just so people can hear them. Obviously, a just transition plan is really important. Exciting one is particularly with Quebec's recent announcement of their joining BOGA, which is the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. There's like a renewed call for Canada to also join the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, which is fun and exciting. Would love to see, obviously, a new timeline for a uh, Canada electricity standard that would get us to a 100% clean grid by like 2035. That would also involve, well, separate to that, but similar is, is a transition to 100% sales of light duty vehicles. That's like your car, or my car being zero emissions by 2035 as well. And then, yeah, getting into that sort of climate finance contribution. So we did see progress from Canada when they doubled their international finance contribution recently to that 100 billion U.S. dollar annual pledge. But what it should actually be at, as we are a wealthy nation, it should be closer to either like between 140 and 300 billion dollars. So we've seen some ambition, but we need to see further when it comes to climate finance. And then also specifically with a country like Canada, because we are so culpable, we do need to see like meaningful engagement with the Warsaw Mechanism for Loss and Damage, because basically, if memory serves, the Warsaw Mechanism for Loss and Damage is supported by obviously like small island developing nations, small island states and developing nations. And there is virtually no meaningful engagement or support from the global north on on the Warsaw Mechanism because it would just it would mean more money being spent. So, yeah, so those are some of the calls that are coming out of civil society for this year, at least for Canada. And so. Obviously, this is a super complicated process, right? Like this is 180 something countries coming together to negotiate a document. Honestly, I'm still blown away that you could get them all to even sign off on the document that exists as it stands. In some ways, what we have now is more than 20 years in the making. And there's some that are big successes and some that are big failures. And some of that I think has to do with, you know, who's in power at the right time. And some of that has to do with, you know, where the world is at 
Like everyone figured that when Trump got elected, we wouldn't do anything really. And then in amongst all of that is also just like, you know, it's a, it's an experience. It's a set of people who keep coming back to these conversations. You know, society's there and everyone is there. And so you as an attendee, what are you looking for? What is your experience of these things? And how do you see the sort of community that exists around these events? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Because it, it's it's weird. In some ways, it's great because you get to form these relationships with people and it's like bonding through trauma, trauma bonding, which I know isn't a good thing. So I like I'm obviously using that term very flippantly here and I probably shouldn't be. But at the same time, it's a weird messed up space because not because it's like it's just functional, really, but it's bizarre to go into this space with so many really strong feelings about climate change and how scary it is. And then to get into these negotiating spaces and see just like the the glacial pace that things are actually moving can be incredibly disheartening and, and incredibly upsetting because it's just like negotiating. Anybody who's ever had to meet with a lawyer knows how long negotiation takes. And it's like when you're dealing with the number of players that are here and the amount of stuff's at stake, like it's like days and days of just like moving punctuation marks around and like picking the perfect nouns and stuff like that. So it's a really long, drawn out, very, very colonial process, which is incredibly upsetting for a whole lot of people who come as observers. But the cool thing that you do see because these spaces feel so so disempowering is a lot of people like working really hard to to get beyond that and to like claim their power as much as they can within that space and work together so like in the last few years something that's that's come up which has been really awesome to see as an outsider is like the indigenous people's caucus and the ways in which that they have demanded their voices and their opinions be heard within that space so like there's some neat things that have come out of it. And then, like I said, like you're meeting so many fantastic people from all over the world and you're forming these really strong bonds. And it really does serve to strengthen the climate movement, not just like the formal negotiator space climate movement, but like the grassroots and the civil society groups that get to come together around these spaces. And there also is like a lot of learning that happens too, which is really neat. The other thing that's also really great around COP that I'm always really excited to see is like all of the awesome organizing and community building that happens outside of like the formal cop space. So like this year, for instance, there's um, and there almost always is during cop, but on the 6th of November, which is like the Saturday in between the two weeks, there's going to be like this big global day of action where there will be like distributed marches all around the world. But there will be like a big march in Glasgow for anybody who wants to come together to march for climate action. Um, and then after that, starting from November 7th to November 11th is the, it's called the the People's Summit for Climate Justice. Oh, I'm sorry, it's the 7th to the 10th. And what's neat there is that they're, they're making everything, it's like everything's a hybrid event. You can join in person in Glasgow or you can join online from like anywhere in the world. It's totally free. And it's days and days of like really awesome workshops and really awesome trainings around climate justice. And so that's really exciting for anybody that wants to maybe tune into that or learn more about it. You can go to, I'm looking at the website right now. The URL is cop26coalition.org slash peoples dash summit. If you were to just Google people summit for climate justice, it'll, it'll come up right away. So that's something that always gets me really jazzed is like all of the amazing grassroots and community organizing that happens in and around the COP space because COP itself can sometimes feel and be so disempowering. And so the word that I always used to use was like anesthetized, like just, yeah, it can feel icky and it can feel slow and it can feel like the wrong decision makers are the ones that are in the room at a given time, especially because it's like 
like I said, you do have those coalition groups around like these developed countries or whatever coming together to to assert their power. But yeah, bottom line is like a small nation does have less power and less sway in, in a cop in a UN space than like the United States does. So yeah, that can feel kind of gross to see that play out in real time. Right. That makes sense. So I think this will be the last question, but I wonder if you can just give us a sense of what's a day there like? Like, are you going to talks? Are you just talking to different people? Is it like a normal conference where you're standing in like a hospital wing feeling vibe of convention center with your little name badge and you're like waving at other people that you like? Yeah. What does a day feel like? Yeah. So like not dissimilar to that, but like so much bigger, like the scale is ridiculous. So I think the I think COP in Paris was like literally at an old airport. COP in Marrakesh was like this big, weird tent city they made. And COP in Glasgow was happening at, yeah, this sort of this big conference campus. Because keep in mind, the number of accredited people is like 30,000. So it's just like huge, 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 huge numbers of people that are there. So it's maybe like a, a regular conference, but like, pardon the phrase, but like on crack. And your days, they start really early because you basically have to go through airport security or something similar to airport security every time you enter the space. And then you're and then you're there late into the evening. Negotiations, like I think, officially start at like 10 a.m. and wrap up later in the afternoon. But like your meetings. So like my organization has a briefing meeting every morning at 8 a.m. So we have to be there in our seats by 8 a.m. And then you might have, so like for my day specifically, I'll have a briefing meeting. And then at 9 a.m. is when coalition group meetings happen. So if you were somebody who was in the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, that's when your meeting would be. And then if you were a government delegate, then your meeting, your briefing happens at 10 a.m. And then like the formal negotiation space is open. And those happen for the middle of the day. But like I said, there are side events that happen all the time. So myself as somebody who like, I am. I might go to a negotiation room to take notes and to follow what's happening, or I might go to a side event if something is is interesting happening there. And a side event could be like there are lots of different like country pavilions that that are open. So like a country pavilion, an organization like in civil society might be hosting a side event on a given topic. So Canada's role in a 1.5 C world or something like that could be a side event that you might go to learn a little bit more about a given topic, or to hear somebody make a statement, or to hear a press conference or something like that. So those are the things that happen throughout the day. There's all these concurrent events. And then you might go to a briefing. Like I'll go to a briefing with the Canadian negotiators in the afternoon so I could hear what it is they're pushing for. And they can also hear what the civil society groups want. So it's like an opportunity for somebody to be like, hey, you messed this up yesterday. We really think you need to be pushing for this tomorrow kind of thing. And then something fun that always happens later on in the day is the civil society groups come together and nominate a country for fossil of the day, which is the country that's been performing. I think the official tagline is like the country that is doing the best at being the worst kind of thing, like the worst group. There's also Ray of the Day, but that's less fun because it's less heckly. And basically you come together, you sing a silly song and you're like, hey, this country sucks. And it's actually as much as it is a silly thing, it also does like countries take it seriously. Like when the Canadian negotiators get fossil of the day, they are upset about it because it means that, yeah, we're watching you and we don't think you've been doing a very good job and it's embarrassing for everyone. So get your things together and deliver tomorrow. And then your evening 
again, depending on what you're there for, might be taken up with a bit of homework, prep for tomorrow. A lot of people write some sort of like, depending on what you're there for, there's a lot of like daily digests and briefing documents that are written to summarize what's happened that day at negotiations. And those are often written in the evenings. And then I haven't even mentioned, again, there's a full day of stuff that happens in the um, open public green zone. So I remember, I think when I was at COP21 in Paris, I like went and saw a talk by Bill McKibben in the green zone, stuff like that. Or like you can walk through and see all the pavilions and it's always like interesting organizations and sometimes you'll get solutions focused stuff happening in the green zone. And then honestly, like a decent amount of your day is spent like waiting in line for coffee or like an overpriced sandwich as well. So yeah, so days are long and it's again, not totally dissimilar from a regular conference, just like way, 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 way bigger. I'm on what's called an observer badge which means I'm not on the government. I'm not actually, I don't speak up in negotiations at all. The The people who speak up in negotiations are like government officials. So what I do is I sit at the back and I will watch a negotiation play out kind of thing. So yeah, it's weird. Oh, and then I didn't even mention the other thing that's like a cool element and a really important element of COP is actions that happen. People will stage like protests throughout the COP space, throughout the day throughout the two weeks. So those are always happening. And those are always really important because it's that's an opportunity for civil society to express their malcontent or express their opinions or, or call for certain things because not every person who goes to COP is going to be able to meet with a negotiator, is going to be able to meet with an official. So the best way to get your voice heard is by staging an action, by staging a protest of some sort or a demonstration, hopefully getting some media attention because there's always a lot of media at COP and getting some eyes on your issue. So those are also always happening throughout the COP space as well. So it's a very, very dynamic, very busy place to be for, for two weeks. Wow. Yeah, seriously. It's funny that you mentioned the fossil of the day, because like that is actually one of the things that clearly does make it back. You know, I'm sure so much of what happens doesn't. And yet the fossil that I distinctly remember when Canada was named fossil of the day, I, I have this like actual memory. And I guess that's maybe why it matters so much, because it actually does end up getting it hits your own country's news. Like any number of other things can happen. But like if your country gets into this designation, it's going to hit the news. People are going to know about it. Yeah. And it's like at, at the moment, again, while it's happening, it's again, it's a big deal. It's like, oh, you're, you're you've nominated. So what such and such country has been nominated for fossil of the day. And then there's like a little selection process that happens. But like ultimately, when fossil of the day is given, it's a man in a bone tuxedo next to a cardboard cutout of a dinosaur. And we all sing the fossil of the day song, which is set to the Jurassic Park theme. So it's like I'll sing. Fossil of the day, fossil of the day, all the shame. Nah, nah, nah. Yeah. So it's it it feels very silly in the moment, but like it is impactful, which is like good. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you can have fun and an impact at the exact same time, I feel like that you're winning. Oh, that's the best kind of action. I my favorite action that I was ever involved in in a cop space probably wasn't the most impactful. But again, the most fun I ever had was we staged a retirement party for fossil fuels because like some government official at some point made like a flippant remark. Like it's like Canada's, it was, it was, it was when Trudeau was doing, it was the first cop he went to. So it was like the whole, like Canada's stepping up, Canada's back, Canada's going to take climate change seriously. So then we were like, oh, so that must mean you're like retiring fossil fuels. So we staged a retirement party. We like brought sparkling wine and like gave speeches and had party hats on and stuff like that. So yeah, if you can like make your point and have fun while doing it, that's the best way. Cause you have to like save your sanity too. So, yeah, well, yeah, you're there for two weeks and it sounds like you're basically doing something every minute of the day for two straight weeks. I can only imagine by the end of it, everyone's a little loopy. 
Oh, yeah. And it's like emotional and physical exhaustion like you've never felt. It's ridiculous. But at the same time, it's like people keep going back because obviously we get something out of it because we feel that like, although it's brutal that this is the space that results in so much change, it does result in so much change. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, cool. So it's happening. It starts in, you said the 30th, 31st. Starts on the 31st, which is like... (laughs) People don't need all these details. The 31st is when opening plenary happens. So not many people are actually on site because it's very nitty gritty. It's very dull. It's just, it's like all of, if you've ever participated in like model UN kind of thing, and there's just like an endless number of therefores and herefores and blah, blah, blahs. Those all happen on the 31st. And then like things really, really kick off on the 1st and it goes through until Friday the 12th. But oftentimes things roll over into the Saturday the next day. So that's always kind of the caveat is it ends on Friday. Not really. Right. That's fair. I My only experience with COP was when I had at a model COP at one time and I was given the job of being Saudi Arabia. And we we negotiated a fantastic, completely voluntary agreement, which the European Union almost tanked. But COP begins in two days. If you're listening to this when it's live, if you're listening on the podcast, you're probably getting this while it's already happening. We will hopefully have some dispatches from COP with you and hopefully some interviews as well with folks from there. We're going to try to set these things up and it's happening. But it's our tradition to give last word to the people we're talking to. So if you want a last word before we go to the end of the show, Lauren, take it away. Yeah, of course. I think I would just remind people to follow along if you can with the People Summit for Climate Justice, because I think there will be some really, really awesome sessions that come out of that. And again, everything from what I understand is going to be live streamed. So you can like tune in from home. It's totally free. What a great way to get stoked and catalyze some action in your hometown and um, hopefully maybe get involved in a local march or local action on the 6th to prove to people, not prove to people, but to like if nothing else, demonstrate to the negotiators in in the cop space that like people at home are watching and listening and they care very deeply about it. So I think that would be my last point. 